We're going to be in 1 Timothy. We're going to pick up in chapter 4. If you would turn there, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the seat in front of you, or if you're in the front row, underneath you, I assume. Uh, and if you need the cheat on it, just to get you there, page 992 is 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. So we did the early letters of Paul, working through Paul establishing the gospel in the early church. And then we skipped ahead to one of the final three letters that Paul writes, as he is really rooting and grounding, and the word used in Scripture over and over again is establishing the church itself. And the church is the chosen vehicle to continue and advance the gospel. The church, not a building, not an organization, not a nonprofit entity, not a staff, but the collection, the body of people is the chosen thing that Jesus created in order to move the gospel ahead. When we say move the gospel ahead, we obviously don't improve upon it. What we do is we give it to others, that we share it and see it take root in a community. So Paul spends his final three letters, two to Timothy, one to Titus, really rooting and grounding the church itself. And so us, collectively, gathered as the body of Christ. And he begins in this message talking about their need for sound doctrine and how some have wandered away. And we'll recap that in just a second. Then he moves to the order and flow of their worship service. And not an entire order, but he brings order to their worship service. He he calls out men to be men of prayer, obviously lacking in their day, and I would say lacking in ours as well. He then goes to elders and deacons and the qualifications of what those men and women should look like, what those men who are called to be spiritual leaders in the church should be, and those men and women who serve as deacons, what they are to be so that they can serve in that capacity. And he encourages good, qualified, strong leadership. As we move to chapter 4, and we look at 4 and 5, he's going to talk about things that exist inside the body of the church. And so here's a main idea for this week. The responsibility of the household of God. So for the next two weeks, we're going to deal with our responsibilities as the church. I want you to hear this. Our collective responsibilities as the church. If you're a guest here today and you belong to another church, then it's your responsibility with the home church that you're a member of. We're glad you're a guest here today. If you're looking for a church, you get to learn a little bit about us. What we believe the Bible says is the responsibility we have to one another. So two weeks, chapter four, chapter five, we're going to look at this in different ways. So let's go back to that, please. So responsibility of the household of God. The next two weeks deal with the responsibilities of the church. This week focuses on how we are equipped to what we are called to do as a family. So how are we to be equipped to do the job that we're called to do? That's what we're going to look at today. And then next week we'll look a little bit more at what are some of the things that we're called to do when things go wrong. And so 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. This is where we left off last week. We had read this. Verse 1 says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart the faith. So if you're reading along, and I hope you are, you're going to see that verse continues. But I want to pause for a second, and I want to remind us where we've been. Again, in chapter 1, 
They remind us. They said some people are departing the faith. In fact, in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says some have swerved from the truth and others have wandered from the faith. Some are making intentional turns away. Some are drifting. But it goes on to say in the verse 19 that some have even shipwrecked their faith. So chapter 1 explains to us the situation he's writing to. There are people that are turning from truth. They're misleading other people. They're wandering away. Right? And some have made a complete shipwreck, or our modern-day vernacular is more train wreck, right? No trains back then, so you can understand why shipwreck made sense. But they've made a mess of their faith, beyond mess, like they wrecked the whole thing. Now, the solution that he gives in verse, again, I'm just referencing chapter 1, you don't have to go back there, but in verse 3, 10, and 11 in chapter 1 is he is calling for sound teaching, sound doctrine, is Paul's call and reminder to Timothy, this is what will fix your, your problem you're dealing with. That some have turned from the truth, we need to bring them back to truth. Some have misled other people, they're wandering, well, truth will correct that. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, sound doctrine will fix that. And never when you hear, you'll hear us talk a lot about Bible, theology, doctrine, Never think that that sits up in your head and just stays there. Because whatever we learn must travel and make that long journey from our head to our heart. That as we learn and as we grow and as we mature, it should transform us. So why people wander away? Often people wander away because they don't think they need to gather together. They forget that the gathering together of the church in person, not just sitting at home and, and watching this when convenient, but to gather together is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus never said, hey, come follow me any way you want to. He said, come and follow me. And all along, it's been about gathering. When people don't gather, they weaken and they drift or wander, or turn. Sometimes people wander away because they don't understand what it means to endure hardship. We've seen that over the last two and a half years as our world went through a pandemic. And not only one pandemic, a virus, but an entirely other pandemic and politics, at least here. Right? And the church was not different. The church was equally politicized and, and, and partisan and divided. And that's not what we're to be. And so we see this hardship, and we don't understand us enduring hardship. And so sometimes we drift. Other people wander away because gossip and division stirs them and pulls them out. And so that's what he's writing to. Hey, listen, a sound doctrine will correct these things. So let's start back in verse 1. Now, the Spirit, he says clearly, the Holy Spirit has said this. So now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, my bottle's not working. All right. 
That was me awkwardly figuring it out, sorry. So there's some false teachers here that are taking place. And he gives specifics, things that are specifically going on in Ephesus that Timothy is to deal with. We don't need to work through the specifics today. What I want you to hear is that there are people that are being drawn away from the church. And that Paul is writing to Timothy and to by, through Timothy to the church in Ephesus about this situation. And he is calling him and calling them. Remember, responsibilities of the household of God. It's not one man. It's not me. It's not even me and just the elders. It's us. We have a responsibility to the household of God. So he, was, he is calling them and reminding them of their responsibility as a body, a church, a family. It's going to kick into gear right here. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The brothers he's referring to is the same imagery he's been using all along. If you put this before the brothers, which is a plural, meaning brothers and sisters, the body, the church. All along, he's been calling the church the household of God. And inside the household of God, with God as its father, are brothers and sisters in Christ. You with me? So that we, as a part of the church, become brothers and sisters. Not just theoretical brothers and sisters in Christ like we are with people on the other side of the planet who also walk with Jesus. But brothers and sisters like a family. And the reason for household or oikos, the word that Paul chooses to use here, is because it's a subset of the family. Right? That you exist, you have a biological family. And sometimes you add people to that biological household through marriage. In fact, it's probably started by two married people. That closest human relationship, or should be, and then you have, ch you have children. These kids are your biological family. Sometimes they marry and add on people or grandchildren. But he's talking about that household, that oikos, that family. And he's using this image over and over and over again. In fact, as he tells them what they need for leadership inside the church, he calls them towards elders and deacons, and here's what he says, and we'll put these two on the screen. 1 Timothy 3, elders must manage his own household well, or an elder must manage his own household well. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So an elder must manage his own oikos, his own family, his household well. He moves to deacons in, in verse 12. Deacons likewise must manage their own households well, as he calls men and women to be lead servants in the church called deacons. They also must manage their households, same word, well. And so just seven verses before where we are right now, he's telling the church, listen, I'm writing these things. I haven't been able to make it to you yet, but that you would know how you're to behave inside the household of God. Your leaders ought to manage their households well so that they would treat this like a household, like a family, and that they would understand this so that we could become this family of faith. So let's restart at that. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, the family, okay, that's you, the church, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. 
Here's what he says, listen, he goes, when you have this kind of issue, when there's an issue that is drawing people away from the faith, when people, some have swerved from the truth and others are wandering and some have made shipwreck of their faith, he says, here's what you're to do. You're to put these things before the entire family. Bring these things to the church. I'm going to use modern day language, which is pulled from scripture, just not from this passage. That you should bring those issues to the, the membership of the church. Right? Paul tells us in four different letters that you are members of one body. You're not members of the global church, although in theory you belong to something that is all Christ's. But your residents, your local membership, you belong to a body, a church, that is supposed to be like a family, like a commitment level of a family, like you don't hop from house to house and figure out, well, hey, what are they having for dinner tonight? I want to hang out. That sounds good. Oh, but I didn't like the music they played. I'm going to go over there. Family. I got family. You got family. Family's crazy, right? So you're in good company if you're here. We don't always agree with everybody in the family, but it's a family. It's a covenant community God created, right? Our culture would destroy that community too, just like instead of Christianity, we're seeing that level of commitment to a family watered down. He says, here's what you need to do when you have these kind of problems. You need to bring them to the membership of the family. You need to bring them to the family. Not everything should be from you down, from your elders in. But you should bring some things to the entire church. Now he's going to talk more about that next week. But I'm going to say this, that we, generations, could have benefited from this over the last year. This is an area where I didn't do well. Where we have had things, and I've had some private one-on-one -on -one conversations with you, as asked. But there were issues. Sometimes somebody left. And we don't know why. And I haven't said anything. Sometimes staff changes have happened. And maybe you don't know why. And I haven't said anything. And I'll give you my jaded, true, honest answer that isn't right. Sometimes if they, I've been told, if you just have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Sometimes I've just had nothing nice to say. And sometimes it's just hard to come back and say, listen, as hard as we vetted and as much as we did, sometimes people just don't do what they, what they say they want to do. And it gets hard to repeat that. And maybe there's ego in that, like, well, maybe I should have done something different. Most of the time, it's character issues, not talent issues. And what you get to see is the talent and the giftedness. And what you don't get to see often is a lack of character. Sometimes people leave over a disagreement, and I will say nothing, but they will say things loudly. They don't feel like they should abstain from saying something at all, and so they say lots of things. And I'll feel the need to defend myself or us. And so sometimes people have wandered away. And sometimes those things that get said just fundamentally are not true. And if I had just seen this and understood this sooner... And I, and, 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 and I know better, I've taught this, I know this, but we weren't practicing this. There's a need for repentance here as a leadership from me. That some things need to be brought to everybody. And sometimes you've got to navigate and find a way, well, how do I say this 
without gossiping or slandering? How do I bring this to the church? Because the net result has been other people that have left because of false pretenses. You with me? This is a family. Sometimes you got to sit down, you got to have a hard conversation as a family. And we haven't done that. That's my fault. But that's what Scripture calls us to, so expect it moving forward. That we will, as a family, navigate hard things sometimes. He goes on. Let me, and let me just give you a note. Just, here's a challenge for us, right? How can we become the church that God the church family that God calls us to be, so that we can discern sound doctrine and endure challenges in our church life together? How do we become that group of people that is able to discern what is right or wrong in hard times? How do we equip ourselves for that? And that's what Paul is going to focus on today. So the rest of today is saying, listen, there's a responsibility that comes with being a member of a church, a follower of Jesus who is covenanting together with other followers of Jesus in a local church. There's a responsibility to that. Like if you live in a house and you're not a toddler, you probably have responsibilities. Whether you're a spouse or a child or an adult child still living there, whatever the situation is, you have responsibilities. And so do we as a family. So how do we equip ourselves for those responsibilities? That's where he's going to pick up. Verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It's that last part, rather train yourself for godliness that I want to talk about. I'm going to put this on the screen first. This is what Paul also writes to Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God, that's just using the generic, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how do we equip ourselves as a church to work through hard things? What we do is we lean into Scripture because Scripture not only teaches us, but corrects us and rebukes us. That's a strong correction. But it also trains us. It prepares us. So let's read that again, verse 7, the second half. But rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, and it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying, he says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. How many of you care? Don't raise your hands. Because by implication, those that don't are put on the spot. Okay. How many of us devote time to our physical body for health? It could be in how you eat, it could be an exercise, it could be going to the gym, it could be, and I'm trying not to make eye contact because there's a bunch of you that don't skip gym day ever, right? But you're not training yourself spiritually. He uses that language that you would train and discipline yourself eternally. That you would understand that living a life of following Jesus takes training and discipline. You don't wander into it and get it right. Like you don't wake up one morning and look perfect. I don't. Let's just go with I don't, right? Maybe you were born that way. Most of us, just to survive, have to try and work on it. being lucky till the wheels fall off, man. All right. It takes work. Train yourself 
You need to train yourself, he says. And so my question is, do you put more effort into your physical training than your spiritual training? And I know there's a handful of you that are like, right now like, I'm off the hook because I don't invest in either one, right? So no, you're not off the hook, right? You're like, I don't go to the gym ever and I eat fast food all the time. No, you still get with the metaphor, right? That we are called to train ourselves. You see, inside the gospel, this should be a response, right? That God loved us so much to reach out to us and rescue us from our sin. That in our sin and our distance, our way from God, in our unholiness and sinfulness and evilness, that God's holiness cannot be a part. God's Son, Jesus, God, became flesh. And he traveled the distance we couldn't travel. That he came to us knowing we could never come to him. And so God's holiness entered into human flesh. God's perfect righteousness became human and dwelt among us, lived as we live. And he lived that life of always glorifying God with every decision, with every word. And he did so not just to be the perfect example, but to also be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And then God himself, in human flesh, died on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin, a penalty he did not deserve, and a penalty he had to endure, the physical suffering and pain, and probably most of all, the very separation from him and the Father somehow, some way, as God's wrath is poured out on Christ on the cross. That moment of not being connected to the Father must have been the worst. Because see, even though we have been without it and we often live without it, Jesus has never been separate from the Father or the Spirit. And so the physical pain was, was something, yes, but receiving the wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserve, that Christ did not deserve, that he took on our behalf so that we would not have to, that is the, is the great penalty or payment or struggle of the gospel. That Jesus would lay down his glory of divinity, not losing it, you can't take away that he's God, that he's eternal, that he is creator, that he has always existed, but, the, but God became flesh, that Jesus became limited to a human body, even born into a child's body, into a poor family, into a rundown area. And that he did so to live this life not in a palace, but in poverty, in want and in need. So we couldn't look at him and say, but you were born like this. He's like, no, no. I lowered myself all the way. And he was hungry, and he was lonely, and he was tired, and he endured all the emotions and all the physical needs that we have, and that he did that. And I just want you to get this, that God himself laid all that down to become that. I want you to hear the effort put forth by Jesus on your behalf. And we'll never be able to understand what laying down his divinity or limiting it to human flesh can mean because we just can't comprehend all that is God. But in that, I want you to see the distance that Jesus traveled for you, and that without that distance, or for me, without that, we could not be here following Jesus today. 
And as Jesus, the creator, who is there in creation, creating all that exists, he gives his life. How the creator can even die baffles my mind. How the one who sustains life can lose his life, I don't get. But he did. And he was laid in a grave for three days to cover our sin. The story continues as the resurrection takes place, that he might give new life to us, that he ascends to prove his job is done, that he pours out his spirit on us to empower us to live differently, to live that life of change that we are called to, and that he promises his return will ultimately correct all that is wrong. But I want you to, th- I want you to think on the incarnation, the human life of Jesus for a minute, and I want you to see how he lived for you. Because that's the calling for you and for me to live for him. Ephesians 5 says this, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus didn't phone it in like you and I often do. Relying on grace and forgiveness, Jesus lived every day intentionally thoughtfully with all his might towards the end of reconciling us to God. And so our call as followers of Jesus is to live our life every day 100% for God. We will fall short constantly. But that doesn't mean we accept that. Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Put in the work like you put in the work in other areas, physical, work, family, whatever it might be. So be imitators of Christ. We'll put this note on the screen. Our commitment to Christ should match his commitment to us. We will never fully match it, but we are to strive towards that end as children of God. That we are to strive to match the level of commitment Jesus has given to us. We'll fall short. We'll fail. We'll want to quit. We will quit, probably every other day. But we're to strive to match that love that has been given to us. Verse 10, back in 1 Timothy. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I want you to hear that. For to this end we toil and we strive. He said train yourself, right? Put the work in. Toil and strive Those verbs don't sound any easier than train yourself. They are work. That you are to put in the effort daily in your faith, that you're to get up in the morning and begin your day in your faith, and that you're to live your day out, whatever that day looks like, in your faith with the effort of glorifying God in every decision, with every word, with every thought, knowing how impossible that is in our broken sinful selves, but relying not on your own strength, but on the resurrection life inside of you, that you live in the resurrected Christ, that the Spirit has been put in you. If you're truly in Christ, you have His Spirit. You have been made new. It's learning how to walk in that. So here's two notes for you. Training for godliness. We meet regularly, we, generations, we meet regularly for worship, prayer, Bible study and community. Engaging beyond Sundays with a diverse group of people is critical to spiritual growth. 
meeting with people that are older than you and younger than you, they've been walking with Jesus longer than you or are brand new to the faith. All of that is critical to learning how to walk in your faith. And if you think you've arrived, uh, we'll go with that. That keeps me out of trouble, at least. The next slide, personal devotion. Scripture calls us to spend time daily in personal prayer, Bible study, as well as in our home with our families. Men, we've been leaning into this. We're going to lean into it until Jesus returns. But men, this is our goal, right? Leading our homes in this way, that you would become the spiritual leaders in your families. I know that scares you, many of you, because some of you were led to faith by your wife. But our call is to lead our homes that way. So we're called to corporately gather for worship, for prayer, for Bible, for community. We're also called to personally devote ourselves to Bible, to prayer, right, in our homes and ourselves. That we are to train ourselves towards godliness. Verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. He didn't say suggest it, make it look good, water it down. He says, command and teach these things. Command them. Like you can't faithfully follow Jesus without doing this, he says. Command and then teach them, train them, help them. Timothy, you're their leader. Walk with them in these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, he tells Timothy. But set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love and faith and purity. Timothy was likely under 40 years old. He was likely in his 30s as he is sent to Ephesus to lead a church that Paul started. That's young for a leader there. It'd be young for us too. But I want you to hear this. He is standing in the shadow of the apostle Paul who planted this church and spent three years there. But he also goes with Paul's authority. I'm guessing there are moments in Timothy's leadership where he is very unsure of himself. But the person who has confidence in him is Paul, for sure. Don't let him doubt you or challenge you just because you're young. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. I have the privilege of teaching Bible at Valley Christian, which is where I get to know these students from. And I have the privilege of seeing them live their lives of faith out before others in their community at school. I've had the privilege of walking with some of you as you were at Valley or are at Valley. Let no one think that these young people can't teach us something about our walk with Jesus. I watched them live out hardship. I watched the seniors work through COVID and online and, and, and just lived their faith out. We never stop learning, and we should learn from everyone in here. So let no one despise you for your youth. He says, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Now I want you to hear that he's saying that to Timothy, and we just equated it to how I see this in young people, but is that calling any different on any of us? That we are to set believers, others, as an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Like, none of us are off the hook from that sentence. That's not limited to the lead guy or to Timothy or to the elders, just like we saw with the qualifications for elders and for deacons, with the exception of the calling to teach or preach. Really, they're just the call of maturing as a believer. That's all they are. And that elders and deacons should just be mature believers. That's what Paul's saying. So we'll put this on the screen. Spiritual maturity... 
Why do we treat maturity as limited to some Christians who would take it more seriously than others and not for all who profess to follow Christ? Why do we not see these guidelines for Timothy or these callings and, 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 and requisite behaviors or attributes for elders and deacons, and why do we think that's not for us also? Again, maybe not the call to teach. Maybe not. Maybe we're just looking at what it means to be mature in our faith. That's it. We're all called to that. Verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Right? We are called to keep the focus of the church on the Word. Right? That we are to see this as the Word of God is the preeminent, the most the strongest way we get to learn from God. So devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Keep the Bible central in the church, he's saying. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, clearly he's writing it to Timothy in this. Timothy had this unique calling and prayer, this moment when the elders laid hands on him and commissioned him to go, and he, sent, he was sent back to Ephesus, and he's been a partner of Paul's all along. So he's been side by side with Paul. He's been instrumental in the church planting and the journeys of Paul. He's been instrumental in those churches, and then he is commissioned to go lead out from underneath Paul being there and to go do this, and so of course that's unique to him. But what he's saying is do not neglect the gift that you have. And that relates to all of us. And so here's how Paul says it to the church in Rome in chapter 12. He says, for as in one body we have many members. Again, that's the language we use in the church today. And the members do not all have the same function. So the, but we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When we talk about membership, we're not talking about Costco, right? We're talking about belonging, members of a body belonging to one another. But Paul's emphasis here and in 1 Corinthians and in other places is that when we come together, there's lots of giftedness here. That your gift's different than my gift, right? And that what you bring to the table is different, just like my needs are different than your needs. But when we come together, we form a body. Like the heart and brain and hands and feet are different, and we want to keep them all. We need them all working together that we become members of one another, that family is members of one another. He says, and so be this. So I would say, use your giftedness for the family of faith. If this is your home church, you are to use this and become members of one another. So how has God called you to make this church better because you're here? stronger because you're here, more stable in hard times because of your presence here. We have a hard time answering that. That should be something you spend time on this week. How do I make this place different, better, stronger? Verse 16, keep a or excuse me, verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, right? Practice immerse yourself. You should be changing. There should be progress. Note, this never gets easier. You should be devoted to this. That you should, you should train yourself to this. That you should strive and toil, he says. You should practice and immerse yourself in this. 
Not dip your toes in to see how it feels. A follower of Jesus is immersed in the word. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Again, strive, struggle, persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch on the doctrine of the church, he tells Timothy. Strive towards godliness, struggle, train towards this end. Mature the church, keep the church focused on the word. He says, do this and keep an eye on yourself. Don't get so busy where you're telling other people, hey, this is what's up with you, this is what Jesus wants for you, that you forget yourself. In another passage, he says, keep an eye, a close watch on yourself so that you don't disqualify yourself in the end. Strong words to one of his most trusted leaders. That we would keep a close guard on our own life while we're walking with others. Don't hear this and use this as an excuse to be on the sidelines. Oh, well, I'm, I need to change this first. No, get to changing it and get with other people. Well, I gotta, I, I, when I see my life, I see this. Well, then live that out in community and change it. But keep an eye on yourself. The other side is equally as true. Don't think you get to tell everybody what they get to do and you don't keep an eye on your own self. Lots of that going on. Just look at social media, right? Lots of advice on how to live by people who are not living it. We just call that politics too. But, all right, so what have we been told today? We're just gonna put this up, here's a list. Train yourself for godliness. To this end, toil and strive. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Devote yourself to the reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gifts you have. That's for you. To be a part of a family means these things, that you are devoted to the end goal of the family. That you train yourself in that, that you devote yourself to that. And this is not just some human earthly family. We're together forever. And this is about our eternity. And the distance between us and there, we live it together. Take that seriously. I'm going to close with this verse, 1 Peter. So Peter says this to the church that he had had oversight of. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Listen, as you, plural, come like living stones, right? In the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, plural, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Note, he notes the individual and then the collective, the church are being built up as a spiritual house. Paul uses household, same thing. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That we are to be a spiritual house, yes, but we're to be a holy priesthood too, and priests have one job. They're go-betweens between God and humanity. That our job is to go between our God and the rest of humanity, but we do that together that we gather together, that we train ourselves together so that together we can reach the lost with the love and mercy of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you because you put out way more effort than we ever will.
You came all the way from heaven here to earth. You put on flesh, even in that, just limiting yourself to a human form. You, the divine creator of everything. God, you put out the effort. You sent your only son to die for me, for us. For all who will call you God. For all who will live in your name. Holy Spirit, you indwell the life of every believer. The promise of baptism is you empowering us to live, to live for you. All this is the energy and effort of you on us. Teach us how to return and live our lives for you, to live committed and faithful lives. We know we'll struggle and fall short. But let us learn how to live those lives, striving, toiling, struggling, training towards you. Never settling for mediocrity. Help us become like you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.